Hello, neighbor, and welcome today to another podcast episode of Established in the Faith. This is Pastor James Pierce, and what a privilege it is to have all of you out there tuning in with us today. We're going to continue with our study in the book of Revelation. I know it's going to be a blessing to you, and if it is, feel free to like it and share it with others. If you'll go over to EstablishedInTheFaith.com, you'll find more information on how you can subscribe to this podcast. You can now get us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, Blueberry, and others as well. Feel free to contact us there on the website with questions and comments that you may have pertaining to the program today. We're going to go on into our study now, picking it up in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. Hope and pray it'll be a blessing to you. fifth chapter of the book of Revelation tonight. In the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation, John had the second vision of Revelation in which he saw a door opened up in heaven and he heard a voice that said, come up hither and I will show you the things which must be hereafter. That is where we believe the rapture of the church will take place. And then the Lord said at that point, he said, I'll show you the things which must be hereafter. Hereafter what? Hereafter the church age. So we believe that the rapture of the church will take place first. And then the other events will take place after that. The rise of the Antichrist, the seven year tribulation period, and so on and so forth. But... John had the opportunity, the door being opened up into the spirit world. He was able to see things in the spirit world. And he said he saw a throne that was set in heaven, and he saw God the Father sitting upon that throne. He also saw a sea of glass, clear as crystal, and he saw... 24 thrones sitting there with 24 elders sitting upon those thrones. He also saw four living creatures, strange-looking beings, and he tries to describe these things by things that we would recognize here on earth. But the truth is there's nothing uh, that we know of in an earthly creation that even remotely resembles what John saw. Uh, they were created sometime in eternity past, whenever that was. These four living creatures with six wings, they just had eyes all over them. And we looked at that last week. And the 24 elders and these four living creatures, they were giving glory, honor, and thanks to God the Father. And I believe it's eight times in the book of Revelation that that phrase is used. And I think that we as the church should hear what the Spirit is saying as it pertains to giving glory, honor, and thanks to God. And as I stated last week, any time we come into this place, it is appropriate to give glory, honor, and thanks to God. Of course, you can do that at home. 
You can do it on the job, riding down the road or whenever the Spirit hits you. But you don't have to wait for the Spirit to hit you. I found that if you'll just start praising Him when everything's going bad. Uh, Brother Jimmy mentioned something over at the rest home Sunday morning. He quoted part of a scripture. The scripture is, Submit yourself therefore unto God, and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. One of the ways to resist the devil is to submit yourself to God. Just start praising and worshiping God for what he's done. Look at what he's done for you in the past. And what a mighty God we serve who's able to work on our behalf today in whatever it is that's going on. And just start thanking him for what he's going to do. And you'll find that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. And you'll start to feel and sense his presence. And the problems may not disappear. But it sure gives you that good feeling on the inside. Knowing that the Lord is there with you to help you through it. John is beholding all of this glory that's in heaven. And in the first verse of Revelation chapter 5, he said, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne. Of course, this is God the Father. A book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now, this is not a book as you would normally think of such, but it's a scroll. They didn't have books like we have today back during John's day. It was a scroll. It's like a piece of paper. And John said it was written on both sides and it was rolled up, sealed with seven seals. Now, these seven seals were in such a fashion that the first seal had to be broken. And you would roll it up so far, and once you broke that first seal, you're able to read the contents between the first seal and the second seal. And then you would break the second seal and read the contents as it pertains to the second seal down to the third seal, and you would break it, so on and so forth. These things happen in a specific order. God has an order in which he is doing these things. I know today we have people, they'll see something take place in the world, and they'll say, oh, that's the breaking of the fifth seal, or or that man, he's the Antichrist, and this, that, and the other. Don't listen to any of that stuff. You know why you don't listen to it? Because the church ain't going to be here. So the church has got to be raptured first before these seals are broken. And these seals are done in a specific order. Now, I want you to notice that uh, this scroll has seven seals. And the seven seals represents uh, several different things of which I'm aware of. Of course, it could represent a lot of things. But there's two things of which I know of they represent. First of all, the number seven is God's number for perfection, universality, and completion. Uh, this scroll is a book of judgment upon sin. And God's judgment is going to be perfect. It's going to be complete. 
And when this book is open, it will mark the beginning of the end of sin and Satan. Secondly, the number seven represents Daniel's last week, otherwise known as the time of Jacob's trouble, the seven-year tribulation period, hence seven seals. And all of that will begin at the breaking of the first seal. The breaking of the first seal is the rise of the Antichrist and so forth, and we'll take a look at that a little bit later on. And all of these things are a must-be. God told John, he said, I will show you the things which must be hereafter. So no matter what we do, these things are a must-be. They are going to happen just as God has decreed that they happen. And all of this is happening in order to bring Israel back to God. They rejected their Messiah. And the Lord is doing what he has to do in order to bring Israel back to God. Now in verse 2, John said he saw a strong angel. This very well possibly could have been the angel Gabriel. Because his name means strength of God. So it could have been the angel Gabriel. But this strong angel was proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Seeing how this is a book of judgment upon sin, let's ask the question this way. Who is worthy to judge sin? Who is morally fit to judge sin? And when this loud angel makes this proclamation, the four beasts come to a silence. They're there singing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. The 24 elders are bowing down and they're praising and worshiping God. And when this angel makes this strong, loud proclamation, all of heaven comes to a screeching halt. And there's a silence. And there's a searching that is going on. Who is worthy? And in verse 3, the Bible says that no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. Why? Because all of mankind has sinned. No man living on earth at that time and no man in hell, as would be obvious, was able to be worthy enough to open up this book. But I want you to notice something else too. It says no man in heaven was found worthy either. Even though you and I are saved, washed in the blood of the Lamb, we have no right to judge sin. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, even though we are saved, there are times when we slip and fall. We don't practice sin as a habit or whatever the case. We're doing our best to get rid of sin. As a Christian, you should hate those things that are sinful. As a Christian, 
the Lord should be revealing things to you that are not right in your life. And you bring those things before Him and you ask Him to help you to overcome these things and whatever the case. But all have sinned and we're all constantly coming short of the glory of God. And maybe perhaps that's the reason why John is weeping as we see there in verse 4. He said, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. John is weeping because of his own unworthiness. And church, let me tell you something tonight. That's the place that we all have to come to. None of us are worthy, but yet every one of us here and Everyone else that may be listening by CD or whatever the case, none of us is worthy. But yet we've all judged someone else because we've seen them doing certain things or we heard them say something or whatever the case. Remember this, Jesus said, judge not. For the same measure you meet, it shall be measured back to you. Whatever you're using to judge them by, that's what God's going to judge you by. He said, judge a righteous judgment. And with that, we have to make judgment calls every day. Every time you listen to me preach, I hope and pray that you are judging what I'm saying according to the Word of God. So make a righteous Judgment. Make sure that what I'm saying lines up with the Word of God. But as it pertains to judging someone's salvation, we're going to have to leave that up to God and uh, let the Lord deal with that. You may see a Christian do something sometime and slip and fall and whatever the case. Just pray for them, and if the Lord asks you to address that with them or whatever the case, then that's what you need to do. Restore such a one, help one another, whatever the case. But And that's what we're supposed to do is pray and, and help others if we can. Now, John was weeping because of his own unworthiness. He looked at himself, which I think that's what we all need to do is take a look at ourselves and uh, let's deal with ourselves before we try to deal with others. I think that's what Jesus was saying when he said, get the beam out of your eye before you try to get it out of someone else's. And uh, when you get right down to it, we're all in the same boat. I think every one of us are struggling with something. Uh, if you weren't struggling with something, you wouldn't be here. You'd be in heaven. Uh, Enoch walked with God and was not. God took him. He got so close to God, God went ahead and took him on home. So look at the person beside you and say, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> Every single one of us, there's something wrong with us. And uh, the Lord's working on us. And John is weeping, and one of the elders come up to him there in verse 5. And said unto him, Weep not, behold the line of the tribe of Judah... The root of David has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now, of course, as you know, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, he is given two titles here. And I want to take a look at each of these titles, the line of the tribe of Judah 
and the root of David. First of all, let's look at the line of the tribe of Judah. Turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. I want to show you something here. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. Uh, As you know, the line speaks of power. He's known as the king of the jungle. He's probably one of the most powerful animals in all of God's creation. Judah is the tribe through which the Lord Jesus Christ would come. And in Genesis 49, in verse 9, Jacob prophesies of Judah and says, Judah is a lion's whelp. This means that a very powerful individual would come from the tribe of Judah. All right, look at the next phrase. From the prey, my son. This individual would be a man, a son. Actually, he would be the son of God. Thou art gone up. Christ defeated Satan at the cross, and he ascended up into heaven. But first, if you look at that verse again, he stooped down. God became a man. That's the incarnation. He couched as a lion. Same verse, Genesis 49, verse 9. He couched as a lion. As a lion sets himself to attack. The Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and he set himself toward the cross. And due to his perfect life and dying on the cross, he defeated Satan. All right, look at the verse again. And as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? Satan tried to rouse up the Lord Jesus Christ by tempting him to step outside of the will of God. But Jesus, as a wise old lion, used the word of God against Satan every time. Satan tried to rouse him up and cause him to sin and whatever the case. All right, look at verse 10. The scepter. The scepter speaks of power. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. This means that children will continue to be born until Shiloh come. The word Shiloh is simply another name for the Lord Jesus Christ. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. When this seal, the first seal, is opened up, in this book that is held in the right hand of God the Father, it will start a sequence of events in order to bring Israel back to God. As the prophecy says, unto him shall the gathering of the people be. All right, that's 
the line of the tribe of Judah, Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 through 10. Has anybody got any thoughts or questions as it pertains to that? All right, we'll move to the second part of that, which is the root of David. If you will, turn over to Second Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7. David was from the tribe of Judah. And as you know, he was anointed king over Israel. And it was during his administration that all of Israel's enemies were defeated. And in Second Samuel chapter 7, move down, if you will, to verse 12. The prophet Nathan says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, this is talking about David's death, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. Now, of course, as you know, this speaks of David's son, Solomon. But take a look at the next phrase of that verse. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophet Nathan prophesied that it was through David's family that the Messiah would come. And in Matthew and in Luke, we read the genealogies of both Mary and Joseph. They're traced back through David as it pertains to the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The root of David... The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. No other human being on the face of the earth has been able to prevail, but Jesus Christ has. John turns to see the one who has prevailed. And I imagine in John's mind, he's expecting to see the Lord as he saw him in that first vision. And when John turns, expecting to see the Lord, instead, he saw a lamb. Take a look there in verse 6. John said, I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain. Now the word lamb is used 28 times in the book of Revelation. The word lamb speaks of God's salvation plan. When John the Baptist was on the River Jordan baptizing people, one day he saw the Lord walking by the side of the River Jordan. And John made the proclamation, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, 
which taketh away the sin of the world. The first time that such a phrase had ever been used. Because the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. It could only cover sin. But John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And as you know, Jesus was that lamb. But I want you to notice that John saw in this vision that the lamb was slain, but yet it's standing. When you slay a lamb, it lays down. This lamb had the appearance of having been slain, but yet it is still standing. That speaks of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. And John saw this lamb standing as if it had been slain. Now this lamb had seven horns. Again, the number seven speaks of perfection, universality, and completion. But it is also uh, symbolic as it speaks of the horns. There were seven horns. The horns are symbolic of dominion. Dominion. Due to what Jesus did at the cross. And we put our trust and faith in what he did. We... Accept Him as our Savior. The Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and lives. We were once dominated by the sin nature. The sin nature had dominion over us. But the moment we accept Christ and He comes into our hearts and lives, He breaks the dominion of that sin nature. And now He has dominion within our hearts and lives if we let him. That's where our free will of choice comes into play. But there's coming a day when the Lord will have total dominion over all things. That devil's going to be locked away in the lake of fire. And uh, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he said, All power's been given unto me, both in heaven and earth. That speaks of dominion. Also, he had seven eyes. Now, the eyes are symbolic of illumination and knowledge. Remember Jesus in the temple at 12 years old. He was talking with the doctors and the lawyers, asking them questions, and they were asking him questions, and he was giving them answers, and they were just amazed at his knowledge at 12 years of age. Of the word of God. And why not? He's the one that wrote it. Which are the seven spirits of God. Now that does not mean that there are seven holy spirits. There's only one. Again the number seven is used as. Uh, an adjective describing the holy spirit. As being perfect. Complete. And universal. But seeing how the seven eyes and the seven spirits of God 
was upon the Lamb. It tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ was the only one who had the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Everything that Jesus did, he did it as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, you and I have the Holy Spirit today through and by what Jesus did. And we have the Spirit, but does the Spirit have us? Jesus had the Spirit, and the Spirit had him. And that's the only difference between us and Jesus. Yes, you're a child of God, but you ain't Jesus. (laughs) Like I said, there's something wrong with all of us in here. Which has sent forth into all the earth. And like I said, due to what Jesus did at the cross, the Holy Spirit has now come into this world. And he's available to anyone who will place their faith in the Lord. And then in verse 7. The Bible says that Jesus came and took the book out of the right hand of God the Father who sat upon the throne. And thank God he takes that book. Because if the Lord does not take that book, sin in this world will continue. Death in this world will continue. The pain, the suffering, the starvation... Man's inhumanity to man. It will continue on and on. Paul called it the mystery of iniquity. Why has God allowed it to go on so long? Well, the Lord's fixing to take this book out of the right hand of God the Father. But the only reason he's able to do it is because he was the only one found worthy to do it. He came into this world, lived a perfect life, died on Calvary's cross, and was raised from the dead. That lamb standing with the appearance as if it had been slain, walks up and takes the book out of the hand of God the Father. And when he opens up them seals, it's the beginning of the end as it pertains to sin and Satan. It'll start the beginning of the great tribulation period seven years and all of this is the time of jacob's trouble it is god's effort to bring israel back to him If the program today has been a blessing to you, we hope and pray that you'll share it with others. This podcast has been made possible by the prayerful and generous financial support of listeners like you to contact us or to contribute to this ministry. Go to establishedinthefaith.com, click on the Donate tab. All donations are safe and secure through PayPal. We look forward to hearing from you.